Hi, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Thomas Patton about his recent book, The Buddha's Wizards, Magic, Protection, and Healing Burmese Buddhism, published by Columbia University Press in 2018. This book examines the Waitza, a figure in Burmese Buddhism who is possessed with extraordinary supernatural powers, usually gained through some sort of esoteric practice. Like the tantric adept in certain other Buddhist traditions, the Waitza can use his skills both to manipulate human affairs in the present world and to help people progress towards Buddhist soteriological goals. The Waitza is thus a morally ambiguous figure, for while this Buddhist wizard might heal a sick relative or help one's karmic circumstances, he might just as well cast an evil spell. Indeed, it is precisely because of the Waitza's perceived power that these wizards and their devotees have been persecuted by both the government and Buddhist monastic leaders, and why this tradition has largely existed at the margins of state-sanctioned orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Patton shows that while prototypes for this Buddhist wizard can be found in Burmese Buddhism in pre-modern times, the Waitza as we know him really emerges during the twilight of the 19th and the first half of the 20th centuries. Like many other Buddhists of this time, the Waitza were dismayed by the presence of the British in Burma, which they saw as a direct threat to Buddhism, and they used their supernatural powers to fight the British in whatever ways they could. Later, after the British left, and once it was seen that Buddhism was not in decline, Waitza shifted their focus from protection to propagation of Buddhism. To this end, they built pagodas not only throughout Burma, but also in faraway lands such as the United States. These pagodas were supposed to transmit the power of the Waitza with whom they were associated, and many Waitza devotees likened them to nodes in an electricity grid or even to Wi-Fi hotspots. While Patton locates Waitza within the aforementioned historical framework, much of his book is more concerned with the relationship between Waitza and devotee, and is based on both historical records and his extensive fieldwork. As noted, Waitza can use their powers for soteriological ends but more often than not, they are found healing the sick. Not only that, but the majority of their beneficent activity occurs after they have died. Indeed, most people who meet a Waitza meet him not during his lifetime, but rather in a dream or semi-conscious state years after his death. In addition, Waitza are known to possess young women and help the living through these mediums, and Patton has a wonderful chapter on this phenomenon, in which he explores the ways in which this Waitza possession is different from other types of possession found in Buddhism. The book also looks at the process by which certain figures came to be prominent Waitza. The most famous Waitza, a man by the name of Bo Ming Guan, who died in 1952, was said to have acted in a most bizarre manner. His speech was often incomprehensible, he would shout like a madman, and he was even known to have hurled his own feces at devotees. After his death, legends about this man and reports of encounters with him accumulated to the point that his saintliness, supernatural powers, and continuing protection of the living were indisputable and yet his persona was in large part a posthumous development. Listeners with knowledge of the saint figure and other Buddhist or religious traditions will be particularly interested in this section. Patton makes a point of discussing the Waitza within a larger religious studies context. He draws extensively on the work of the scholar of American religion and Catholicism, Robert Orsi, for example, and he contrasts the dream encounter rhetoric that he discovered in Burma with the tradition of dream interpretation found in certain forms of Islam. In the, interview, in the interview, we just scratched the surface, and listeners wanting to know more will have to read the book in order to appreciate its arguments more fully and to enjoy Patton's many detailed accounts from the field. 
The book will obviously be important for anyone studying Myanmar and Southeast Asian Buddhism, but will also appeal to those interested in possession, healing rituals, Burmese resistance to colonial rule, and the marginalization of religious groups perceived to be in possession of secret esoteric powers. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today, I'm with Thomas Patton, Assistant Professor in the Department of Asian and International Studies at the City University of Hong Kong. We're going to be talking about his recent book, The Buddha's Wizards, Magic, Protection, and Healing in Burmese Buddhism, which was published by Columbia University Press in 2018. So hello there, Tom, and uh, thanks very much for taking the time today to chat with me about your book. Thanks so much, Luke. Thanks for inviting me to be uh, on this today. So I want to begin, as I always do, by asking you how you came to the study of Buddhism, uh, the study of religion, and specifically the study of Myanmar. Oh, sure. Um, when I was uh, undergraduate, I was majoring in religious studies, and there weren't too many courses offered on Buddhism. So it was mostly courses on Christianity, Judaism, and uh, but during the senior year of my undergraduate, I went on the well-known Antioch Study Buddhist Studies Abroad program. I'm sure you know well. And sure. when I was there, the the you know it was you know immersed ourselves into Buddhist philosophy, anthropology, history, meditation, and it was from there I really got a good solid foundation in you know, just basic Buddhist studies stuff. And the best part, though, from there was when we got to go and do our one month independent research, you know, during the month of November. So we were there and I decided, oh, I, I wanted to go to Thailand originally to, uh, I don't know, I had this idea that I wanted to be a forest monk. You know, I read uh, all about the forest monks and I was a young man and I just wanted to hang out in the, in the forest and gain enlightenment. I mean, it was, I was a young man just really throwing myself into it hardcore and but then i if i was in delhi to go to the to get a visa i, I can't remember it was also foggy this was back in 1999 and i remember like the 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 embassy being closed or something but then i saw buddhist monks standing outside and i said oh hello you know uh, are are you from thailand they're like no we're from burma and i was like burma I was like, what's that, Bhutan? <laughs> I was like, he's, they're like, no, Myanmar. And I was like, Madagascar? I was like, I had no idea what they were talking about. And I was like, but you're, you're Theravada, right? And they said, oh, yeah, we're Theravada. And I said, oh, you know, I was thinking about becoming a monk and going to Thailand. And they said, oh, no, 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 come, come with us to, to our country. You know, you can stay at our monastery. Our, our head teacher is this famous monk. He'll take care of your visa and everything. So sure enough, I mean, one thing led to another. They helped me get the the visa and the introduction letter. And uh, next thing I knew, I was on my way to Yangon. So I flew into Yangon and w went up to Mandalay and Sagaing and ordained temporarily for a month there. And while I did my independent research for the Antioch uh, Buddhist Studies program. And when I eventually ended up going back to the States, finished up my undergraduate degree, and said, oh, I think I want to do a little bit more study in religion, world religion. So I entered the Harvard Divinity School. And while I was there, 
it was kind of expensive to live in the apartments in Cambridge. And I didn't want to take out too many loans because I already had a bunch of undergraduate loans. So I heard that there was a Burmese monastery temple in this part of town outside of Boston in Malden, Massachusetts. So I went there, started hanging out with the monks and I asked them, I said, Hey, can I be your kapia? So kapia is this Pali word, which means like the, the temple, temple boy. So I was, I was going <laughs> to, I has to be their temple attendant. So they said, Oh, this might work out well. Um, so I ended up, you know, driving them to dentist appointments, doctor's appointments, you know, taking their their car in to get serviced. Um, and then I'd go to school in the day and come back at night. And since their English wasn't that great, I had to really learn Burmese. And so oh, I learned wow. Burmese just just to be the, the the temple attendant. And and then so I did that for two years while at the Divinity School. And then afterwards, I got my master's and really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I worked um, in one of the libraries in town for about two, three years. And then I realized, no, I think I want to I do a PhD. So I applied to various places and decided that um, Cornell University had a really good uh, Asian studies, religious studies, and Burmese studies program. Uh, so I applied and went there. And so that's pretty much in a nutshell, how I got to, you know, studying Buddhism, religious studies, and more, you know, Myanmar, very specifically. Yes, yeah, no, that's a great story. Tem- Temple boy in Boston. Um, so how <laughs> then did you come to focus specifically on the topic of this book, namely, uh, these ways are Buddhist wizards in within Burmese Buddhism in the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, totally by totally by chance. Uh, I really, I applied to my PhD program. I wanted to study, I wanted to do a historical ethnographic study on the Tilashin or the Buddhist nuns in, in the country, Myanmar. And then I was also a bit interested in Vinaya, so the monastic codes. So I was kind of playing around with a bunch of things. And when I was ordained in 1999 i heard about these wizards there was the actually the 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 monks that i was living with who spoke english actually used the word wizards and i was like what you know and at that age i was like no that you know when i had a very uh i had a very puritanical idea of what buddhism was and i said no that can't be buddhism they must be they must not be real buddhists they're not real buddhist monks so i uh, i just kind of didn't think anything of them but uh, but then, as I talk about in the book, the in the in the introduction, I was just horribly horribly sick one evening, you know, with my Burmese language tutor, and I was just—I mean, it was the, some of the, the sickest I've been in in my life, and just this horrible fever and vomiting and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, I just that night this is, this is this is in burma right this is in burma yeah right, i was right. in mandalay and i was doing research and learning language and uh and it was just i got just hit with something i didn't know what it was at the time but my i, I mean yeah i'll just tell you the story it's uh my language instructor didn't know what to do with me so he propped me up on the back of his motorbike and said you know okay your home is too far it was too many miles away I was stupid enough. I didn't bring my uh, passport with me that night. 
And so he said, okay, well, my father, you could stay in his place. And, uh, but I was like, Ooh, you know, it's kind of sensitive because at that time, and even now a little bit, foreigners were not allowed to stay, um, in local people's homes. They had to be registered or stay in hotels or red or government run hostels. And so he's like, don't worry. My father has some, you know, unfortunately he's becoming senile. He's got some paranoia issues. He's completely created this, his, his home in like this compound so that nobody can get in or out and you'll be safe there. So at first the parents did not want me to stay there. They were convinced that I was a CIA spy that had befriended their son to somehow do some, some, you know, undercover operative work in the country. And they said, it's true. I've seen it in movies before. And I, I was just groaning. I was like, just please, dear God, just let me sleep here tonight. And so they eventually put me somewhere and I won't go into the rest of the story, but eventually I got out of the compound early the next morning, scampered away. The only place that was open that early in the morning was uh, a, a local Buddhist temple monastic area with a pagoda nearby where people had already begun congregating before dawn to make offerings, to meditate, to pray, etc. So I said, okay, I'll just sit up in meditation posture and lean against the wall and just just wait till the public transport is up and running and I can get back home. And next thing I knew I fell asleep and I woke up just totally disoriented, completely alone, wishing I was anywhere, but Myanmar at that moment (laughs) doing research. And I looked down on my book bag and someone had placed a little, what I thought was a laminated prayer card. You know, it looks like something like in Catholicism, a little prayer card with a saint on the front. And I was like, what the heck is this? And so I looked on the back and on the back was a little kind of like a little spell for healing, which was written on the back in Burmese made a bunch of poly verses. And so I just decided, Oh, I'm just checking myself into a, into a hospital. So I went there and as I got better, I I ended up having dengue fever, which they found out. And during my stay in the hospital, I, you know, took out that prayer card and I was asking the doctors and nurses, I was like, what, what is this? Who is this? And then one of the doctors was like, you know, how do you say this in, in your language? He's kind of like a, like a wizard. And I was like, oh, these Buddhist wizards I keep hearing about. So from then on, it was just, I was like, I just became fascinated by these Buddhist wizards. And that's what I decided to make that the central study of my dissertation. Great. Um, so, so um, I mean, we're going to talk about what these wizards are in mm-hmm. more detail later in the interview, but... Um, I mean, just can you give us a brief outline or explanation of what these wizards or ways are, mm, what sort of yeah. figures they are? So, I mean, like, yeah, this Waitza, this wizard figure, it can be male or female, but almost always male. I mean, females do have the the the, the capacity of becoming a, a Waitza, but a Waitza refers to any human being. It could be a monk a nun, a layperson, a hermit, um, who undergoes some kind of transformation through the use of um, meditation, alchemy, um, ingesting um, sacred diagrams, Kabbalistic squares, engaging in um, creations of runes or, you know, also these spells, these magical diagrams. 
so that the manipulation, the creation, the use of these somehow has this transformative effect on the person so that he or she gains all sorts of powers, supernatural powers, um, uh, you know, powers of flight, of longevity, of healing, of walking through walls, tunneling through the earth, uh, conjuring an army of soldiers that he can, can, uh, can use for whatever means. So it doesn't necessarily refer to um, like a certain uh, vocation in life. So it, uh, like a, a wizard doesn't just have to be a monk or it doesn't just refer to a layperson. It's more of a mastery in some kind of esoteric lore. And, you know, Weza actually comes from the, the Pali Vidya, which is from the Sanskrit Vidya. So meaning, you know, it could be uh, wisdom, uh, you know, especially higher order of wisdom or even esoteric wisdom. And so Weza is actually the shortened form, the Burmese pronunciation of the shortened form Weza Dara, Vidya Dara, which means can be, in the dictionary, it's like, caster of spells or master of uh, uh, spells, esoteric wisdom. So it's that kind of character that I talk about in this book. Mm -hmm. Great. So, and what, one of the things that you note is that the, um, that the, uh, uh, that while Buddhist monks are sort of, are, you know, generally perceived as being, uh, morally upright, or at least if they're misbehaving monks, they're still part mm -hmm. of the Sangha, so they sort of are representatives of that which is morally right. Uh, Wazes are sort of a more morally ambiguous character. Mm. So how how is this the case? Mm. I mean, because on the one hand, yeah. uh, I mean, a monk can be a wizard, but as a sort of, as a separate ca category, um, how is there this sort of moral ambiguity Mm, that's a really good question. It, it, it comes into because there are different grades of Weza. So like in, uh, for example, Lord of the Rings, there's different gradations of the wizard. There's Gandalf the White, Gandalf the Grey, and maybe there's another, I don't know, a lower one. But this in, also in this, this, this Weza phenomenon within Myanmar, uh, there are higher order wizards, middle order, and lower order. And all three of these, these levels of wizards all engage in the same types of practices, or they engage in similar um, uh, exercises for the manipulation, creation, and mastery of certain esoteric lore. And so, but some, like on the lower end of the ladder, tend to use their powers for more worldly gains, which isn't necessarily bad, but they could use it, for example, to put curses on people or to make people fall in love with, with others or to trick someone into doing something that they don't want to do on their own. And then there's the middling uh, wizards who kind of are in this, you know, they're kind of like the gray wizards or the gray Jedi, you know, again, looking at, you know, Star Wars Jedi, there's the the dark side, the light side, and then there's those Jedi in the middle who are kind of, you know, uh, 
you know, dabbling a little bit in each of the the, the, the powers of the light and the dark. But mm-hmm. these wizards are for, can also draw upon these powers for more nefarious means or for more, um, you know, higher order spiritual means. And then the higher Waitza, the ones that, you know, I talk about in this book are those who use these practices for the sole purpose of, you know, proper, you know, for good, good things, you know, healing people, helping people to uncover lost items or lost people, protecting Buddhism from decaying, um, for keeping the, the Buddhist institution solid during times of, of uh, possible deterioration. So the public, when they you know, hear the word Waitza, they tend to take all three of these Waitza types and kind of it, it, not mix them together, but they are aware that the spectrum of Waitza can fluctuate from the higher order to the lower order. So that's the, the, the ambiguity of these wizards is both a, is both good and bad in the, the development of the Waitza phenomenon in Myanmar. On the, on the, on the negative side, there's been a lot of, and we'll probably touch on this later on in the interview. There's been lots of uh, government oppression because of, there's a lot of fear that, these wizards might use their powers to, to, to try to wrest power from the government, for example. But then by being this kind of ambiguous figure, they can work on the margins of society. For example, a monk who might be following the Vinaya very strictly, might be, you know, a Vipassana, hardcore Vipassana meditator, Vipassana like, you know, mindfulness insight meditation, and be a very good upstanding moral monk, but yet engage in this kind of these other activities that kind of puts him on the outside of his monastic community, the lay community, but that yet he's also seen as a source of great power by to which many people can go to for, for help. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, does that, does that yeah, kind no, of answer the question? No, yeah. No, that's a very clear answer mm-hmm. on it. So, mm-hmm. um, right. So I guess Wade said their power can be used for, you know, casting you know evil spells figuring mm-hmm. out winning lottery numbers or you know exactly furthering one's you know oneself you know on the buddhist soteriological path or something so yeah um, exactly perfect so so um so most listeners will um be familiar with the sort of the ideal relation buddhism's ideal of the relationship between the laity and uh the monastic um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, where there's a symbiotic relationship. Um, in the case of the ways, Waitza, if that's, uh, what's the relationship between the devotee and the wizard? I mean, how do the two mm. interact? And is there some element of reciprocity there in the same way that there is in this sort of uh, symbiotic sort of sangha laity relationship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple things. First, what's interesting is that let's say you have a lay person who's a Waitza, he might have followers of monks. So you'll have this lay person Waitza who's teaching a bunch of monks, uh, you know, how to traverse the, the wizard path. Um, this lay person might give teachings to these monks, uh, which is, you know, in Myanmar, I mean, the, the monks are, are, have such, are such, um, strong, uh, 
sources of power. They're the ones who are usually doing the teachings. They're the ones who sit higher up on chairs. They have special place and privilege within their society. So to have a layperson and sometimes even a female Weza, um or trainee, someone who is recognized as having some power garnered from the the way from traversing the weights of path, she might have a follower of a, a vast bunch of followers, and some of them might be monks and nuns. So that's mm. one interesting uh, about that relationship. But about the you know the weights proper and his devotee. The Waitza can be both a flesh and blood person who's actually living right now as we speak, or the Waitza, what's also special about them, which makes them Waitza, is upon their death, they can either, there's two ways that a Waitza can die. They can die um, uh, a Shintwet, the Burmese, or a Teitwet. So a Shintwet um, is when they completely disappear you know they just poof uh they just disappear their whole body and spirit just go out and they are able through the magical powers that they've accumulated and they're able to place themselves somewhere in another part of the world another dimension another place that humans cannot are don't have access to but yet these ways live in with a bunch of other groups of Waitza and intercede on the behalf of humans when they are in need. Or the other form of, you know, dying as a Waitza is they, the, you know, as we would see anyone else die, their, their physical body disappears, but their, their spirit, I know, again, in Buddhism, we said, well, how there is no spirit in Buddhism, you know, there is no soul, apparently, but yet there is the spirit that leaves the body, which then lives somewhere in another dimension, another portal, another area of, you know, the universe that also can intercede on the behalf of humans. And both these types of wizards upon death appear to their devotees in visions, um, uh, you know, in, you know, sounds by um, providing signs or omens to their devotees. So there's that, you know, upon death, these weights that can still interact with their devotees, but also the ones, you know, the physical flesh and blood still living weights can also, they interact with them on a daily basis, like any other spiritual teacher would with their devotees. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you, so you note that, that, um, although the weights are like figures can be seen, um, in materials that are supposed to be um, datable to as early as the first century CE, mm. um, the the weights of figure that you're really looking at in this book um, doesn't emerge till the 19th century. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to ask about the historical context um, in which this particular um in which the wizard sort of, you know, emerges. Um, why did this particular religious figure become so important um, in the 19th century? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would say, and I, I think others would would support me on this, it's things really started to change, of course, during the, the British colonization of the country. Um, before then, there were all sorts of these, you know, 
religious medicine men, um, you know, using all sorts of ways of technology, you know, ways of technology of alchemy, of meditation, spells, diagrams. Um, but they, it wasn't, nothing was quite institutionalized or, you know, it, it, it wasn't as widespread institutionalized and as, you know, was it a solid phenomenon that became much towards the end of the 1800s and then really into the 1900s sort of British colonization. So, and one of the main time periods when we really begin to see a change is during, you know, the 1930s when there was this one very popular charismatic individual called Seasan who through his, uh, you know, charisma through his know-how of how to uh, uh, to to gain people to follow his cause against the British he amassed a very, you know a, a small army of people that and he would of you know many villages or Burmese people who were against the British colonization and also against you know higher taxes and and injustices that they saw were being uh, per, per, uh, perpetrated by the British against them and they felt that, you know, the Buddhist religion was deteriorating. You know, the, the British were not doing a good job like the previous Buddhist king did uh, until he was deposed. The British just weren't doing as good a job of protecting the sasana. The sasana is, you know, the, the Buddhist teachings and institutions that, that, that support Buddhism in the country. Uh, they felt that, you know, it was the end of times. Uh, you know, the, the Christian British were coming in, the, 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 the community, their country was falling apart, the Buddhism was falling apart. So it was during this time when, especially Sayasan and other medicine men who were traveling the country and who were drawing on this Weza lore to fi- kind of fill a vacuum that, that was created upon the dissolution of the monarchy and to try to create some kind of counterattack that would dispel the British from their country. Mm. And so one of them is Sasan and he, his group engaged in lots of similar activities that we see with the, the way to even nowadays. I mean, they had certain um, engaged with certain uh, magical diagrams that they believed would unlock supernatural powers that they could use to repel the British forces. And that of course failed. And the, uh, but the, the weights began to be somewhat, you know, oppressed and suppressed by the British forces uh, after that. But really upon the, the exit of the British forces and uh, the Japanese forces from the country after World War II, all these stories really begin circulating about specific charismatic Waitsa who were very powerful, courageous, and did much to fight back against the British forces and even the Japanese forces. So really in the late 40s, we begin to see the creation of uh, monthly magazines that were published on a monthly basis about the Waitsa that were disseminated across the country. Uh, books began being published, um, you know, certain assemblies, congregations, associations, semi-secret associations 
devoted to specific wizards and their teachings and their specific practices began to grow up and began to develop. People from all walks of life began um, uh, joining these these uh, associations. So it was really around this time, the middle of the 20th century, when we began to see the real kind of institutionalization of the ways of phenomenon. And uh, from there, it, it, it uh, kind of morphed into what we know of the ways of phenomenon today. Great. So... Um, I want to move on now to uh, a specific mm-hmm. Waitza whom you mentioned, who's mm-hmm. by far um, the most popular, uh, or according to your book, the most popular Waitza in Burma, and that's Bo Guang. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Bo Mingguang. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And he lived from 1885 to 1952. And um, yep. you know, in a fascinating chapter about this figure, you explore the way in which he came to prominence, uh, you discuss his posthumous career, which is, it's really after his death that most of his devotees sort of mm. encounter him um, through dreams or whatnot. Um, and mm-hmm. the, you also discuss the ways in which his devotees interact with him. So who exactly what was this man and how did he come to be such a revered uh, Waitza? Mm. And actually this is the Waitza who was on that little prayer card, laminated prayer card that somebody dropped on my, uh, book bag at the beginning mm. of this, the, the the story that I tell at the beginning of the book and at the beginning of this interview. Mm. So, and he wasn't a monk, you know, I, I assumed that when I first saw him, I was like, oh, he's not a monk. You know, I, I also thought, oh, you know, anybody of this power and stature, he must surely be a monk. But then when I started hearing stories, even from monks tell me about their amazing sights and visions and experiences that they had of this lay person, I, that's, that was, a uh, something I really wanted to look into more. So, yeah, like you said, he was somebody who lived about, you know, 1885 and died in 1952. And he really came to prominence again during the period I just talked about, you know, during World War II. He was somebody who's a lot of his stories that are his miraculous stories that are associated and attributed to him really come about during episodes involved with, you know, specific events during World War II. So, for example, he is said to be able to foresee when uh, Japanese bombers would drop bombs in this area of Myanmar where he and some of his followers were living. So he would go out on the rocky ledge of this, you know, mountain, this, you know, hilly area, and he would start doing wacky things like flapping his arms like a bird, or he would go out and start you know, eating food and letting the crumbs crumble all over the place. And people took that as a sign that, oh, something, something's happening. Something must be up. So, you know, maybe we should do something, you know, go inside, take cover, seek shelter. And they would say, sure enough, a few minutes, hours, or even days later, sure enough, the bombs came. So a lot of these stories, I mean, when I was reading them or coming across these miraculous stories, I didn't see them as too amazing. You know, one of the most amazing stories for example was him using a, a stick to magically uh turn turn on a car that had been broken down on the side of the road for years and then people love telling that story and i was like huh i was like what and then oh and then another guy would be like oh but what about the story of him putting the train back on the train tracks when it went off the the rails and i was like uh-huh and so 
but it's it's really interesting as I started to read about you know this time period and read you know uh, read other historians who are writing about the technological advancement of you know this period in the the late you know the the forties and and fifties and during and right after World War II, it really was this m- major influx of technology, and so the Weza began seeing things like the telegraph or the steam engine or bombs or, you know, this, that they saw as awe inspiring, wondrous, something coming from foreign lands, but yet their wizards could control all of it. You know, when a Western technological advancement like a train or a car broke down or went off a car track, their wizard could that could make it better again with their magical Buddhist power when uh, they were in danger by these, uh, these bombers flying across them, their wizard could foresee it and tell them what to do. So it was, but this what's really also interesting is this wizard, as I write in the book, I mean, if I had to diagnose him, I would say he was, had some major psychological issues he would speak in tongues. He would defecate in the open. He would fling his feces at people. He would expose his genitals to, to people. And interviews of his devotees say that, you know, some of them say, well, you know, yeah, he was a bit crazy, but there was, you know, wisdom in his madness, kind of like mm-hmm. those who were familiar with divine madness or crazy wisdom from other religious traditions actually said it could be that. Others who are a bit more cynical said, well, he happened to live with some very, some very, um, uh, what's the word I want to use? So, so he, he lived with a, with a family who were very good at manipulating him and creating a cult around him. Hmm. So, so, you know, he was, unfortunately he was a, somebody who really did suffer from psychological disorders and yet was manipulated by a family who knew that they could get lots of money and resources and followers if they, you know, did their part. Right. Um, and, so it was this individual, even, even while he was still alive, had lots of followers and even had a magazine published monthly from 1948 to 1952 until his death. So he was already quite popular then, but he really came to prominence and is arguably the second most revered figure in the country after the Buddha. Um, in years following, when people began to have dreams of him, when he started to show up in uh, other magazines and more stories began to be attributed to him uh, after he died. Um, because, one of, like as I said, one of the main reasons that Waitza can still act in the world upon death is because they don't, they're not reborn. They don't take rebirth. Uh, they go to another dimension from there, from which they can then... Uh, intercede on the behalf of of humanity. Mm-hmm. But a quick question, because in the case of Booming Guan, it sounds like all the lore around him and all this—I mean, the whole image of him and the figure—and you know, this the figure, um, sort of the image of him. All, although it begins to take shape during his life, it really takes off and continues to develop it and sort of 
comes into sort of a mature development after his death. I mean, how representative is this of Waitza more generally? Another great question. Is, is, it, is it common uh, that this is a type of religious figure whose sort of prominence mm-hmm. and importance usually is developed, uh, you know, after, after the death? Yeah, that's a great question. And it could be actually attributed to non-Waitza religious figures in the country as well. Yes. Um, there's, there's always, people are always looking out for the next, uh, for the next saint. Uh, whether mm. living or dead, and when they're dead, it's much more easy to attribute all sorts of things to that saint. You know, like you mentioned, sure. winning lottery numbers. You know, they're yeah. like, "Oh, that saint appeared to me in a dream." Um, I, Guillaume Rosenberg, he he writes quite a bit about these kinds of things in his work about the power of the saint and and these kinds of things. So that would be another. If if listeners are interested, it'd be good to read his his work as well. But um, a lot of them, there are other. Very famous Waitza, um, Yakansen Town Seattle, who I who I write about in the book, um, who's uh, become very popular after the fact. There's another now one who's having a very he's becoming quite popular throughout internationally right now. In you know 2018 2019, he is um, is I mean the Burmese name is Bopauk Sain Seattle. But it, which means like he's the abbot of um, you know uh, axes, like you know axes where you cut down trees. So his story was attributed to. He became popular after a story started circulating that he was arrested by Japanese officers during the uh, Japanese colonial era, and um, they were going to interrogate him. And his arms were tied behind his back, and then he miraculously, through his magical powers, made two. Uh, axes appear in the sky that began, you know, swinging and swinging through the sky, and they cut the the cords, the binds that was tying his hands to, together, and then he was able to, you know, be free. And so then he became, you know, Mister Mister Axe Wizard. And these this axe, like an image of the axe, has become a symbol of protection, power luck throughout the country and during you know the past you know decade or so there's been this also increased popularity in buddhist amulets especially in thailand and coming out of thailand and so it just through various connections uh that i won't get into now him this monk this wizard mr axe wizard and his axe amulets became very popular amongst collectors and Buddhists in Thailand and Singapore, who then started wearing these uh, amulets and then began attributing their luck and success and protection and health to this amulet. And they wanted to find out where it came from. So then they started going to Yangon, where this uh, this monk who died in, in the, also in the 50s or 60s, um, still had a monastery. And when I went there in the past, it was always kind of, you know, run down. But recently I went back there a couple months ago and thanks to massive amounts of money being pumped in from devotees, weights of devotees from Thailand, Singapore, Taiwan, and other parts of mainland China, the place is, I mean, it's, it's amazing what they've done to it. I mean, there's multi-storied structures on the, on the compound premises. So you begin to see these kinds of things happen, you know, after the death, if 
their stories and their power can be attributed to such things as, you know, luck and power and health and healing. And then they go on to have international fame, which then makes them even more popular back in Myanmar because they say, wow, if, you know, international people think that this saint is worthy of respect, then maybe we should look into it even more. Sure. So moving on a bit, um, Mm -hmm. in the third chapter of the book, you discuss uh, possession of certain Mm. people, mainly women by Waita. And um, you provide a number of fascinating and, and, and really actually very moving accounts of such possession that you witnessed during your field work. I mean, I should mention that for listeners that this whole book is, I mean, it's theoretically rich, but it's also, and, you know, you consult historical documents, but, you know, it's, it's very ethnographic. Um, And so I, I, I just want to ask you how this possession, well, you say this possession is different from other sorts of possession that, or um, that we find in Burmese religious life and different from the possession that most people in religious studies would think of when they hear the word possession. So sort of what, Mm. what is this, what is the sort of nature character of this possession of these uh, women Mm. by Waitza? Yeah. So these, what, what was really striking about, uh, you know, these, these, especially young women that came into this power by being possessed by Waitza usually were young women in their teens, early twenties who had, were facing or had just had really life altering experiences. You know, they've, they lived through abuse, um, being forced to marry someone they didn't want to, um, you know, in-laws who are especially vicious to them. So I, I didn't notice it at the time, only after the fact, after I looked over my notes of, of interviewing and, and visiting with and watching dozens of uh, female um, weights, uh, devotee mediums, did I then make this connection? And this is very similar to what other anthropologists have found amongst, you know, young women, especially in Southeast Asia, who undergo similar transformations in their societies when confronted with uh, life-altering um, uh, challenges and stressors in their lives. But for these wizard possessions, these is, is a bit different than, let's say, other kinds of possessions in the country in Myanmar. So many of your listeners might be familiar with gnats. Gnats are other spirits which can or cannot be part of the Buddhist pantheon, depending on, you know, who you speak to in the country. And another scholar, Brac de, uh, uh, Benedict Bracte-Lepierre has written extensively on the gnat and gnat spirit possession. You know, she's done at least three decades on this. So I would highly recommend looking at her work as well. But um, these wizard, these Weza possessed encounters these experiences tend to come tend to be more less ecstatic so for example the gnat uh experiences of possession tend to be more ecstatic they tend to be more uh experiences where the person being possessed or channeling the 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 spirit might not be entirely conscious of what's happening to him or her during the experience or that person who's being possessed by, or who's channeling the, the gnat, the guardian spirits 
might have to engage in some preliminary activity involving, let's say, maybe alcohol or, you know, to, to work themselves up into some kind of trance-like state through which then the, the, the spirit can enter into that person. Within, it's a bit, a slightly different in the Waitza case, whereas these, especially young women, they usually have some kind of initial encounter early on that somehow has a trigger that opens up, that primes them, that indicates to them and their family that they are ripe for being uh, possessed or they are now vessels for channeling the spirit. So one way is, you know, they may have been very good, you know, quote, they may have been being very good Buddhists throughout their young, when they were younger, they may have, you know, said their prayers diligently, they may have been, you know, very upstanding moral individuals in their community, they may have made donations to monks in the past. So perfecting their, you know, their parami, their virtue for extended periods of time, then makes them more uh, receptive to the Waitsa coming to visit them. And then the Waitsa will appear to them, enter into them for, you know, certain periods of time, anywhere from, you know, a few months to a few years, some say maybe for, you know, almost a whole lifetime. And they, you know, they use this, the, the, the possession, the mediumship of these Waitsa to then take channel that power of the Waitsa who might not be able to do it themselves. You know, there's always the understanding that these Waitsa, if they can, and there are instances in the devotees reports that the Waitsa either in flesh and blood or in kind of apparitional state have actually helped individuals, but another major way for them to actually enact change and help people physically such through as the heal specific ailments is to actually enter into uh, a Waitsa devotee, then they like a, using a like a puppet who's pulling the strings are then able to manipulate the hands, the speech, um, the body of the devotee to 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 do what the the waitsa wants. But then when the waitsa leaves, the power is still housed within that devotee. Mm. So um, so whereas like say in the nat the nat possession. Um, from from the best that I know of, that power only resides in that person during periods when that gnat actually resides in that person's body. Yeah. But here in the Waitsa, even after the Waitsa leave for, you know, after leaving for that, you know, how until the person comes back, until the Waitsa comes back, that person still has the power of the Waitsa to still heal people, to give advice, um, so that's that's what makes it a little bit different. And again, I would really um, look into uh, Benedict's work, um, and she because she puts it much more eloquently than I do. So, one of the things you discuss is the importance of pagodas within the world of Waitsa and Waitsa devotees. And in fact, you begin this discussion with a story about a Burmese monk who builds a pagoda on a farm in New York State in 1958 after he had been instructed to build pagodas outside of Myanmar by Bo Mingguan. And I mean, of course, pagodas are extremely important in Burmese Buddhism more broadly, but why are they so important for Waitsa? What's their role here? Mm. 
Yeah, it's that's something that I was also on the lookout for doing my research. But ways that devotees kept saying, "Oh, why don't you go to this pagoda, this pagoda, that pagoda?" And we started visit. I mean, pagodas in general are extremely central to Buddhism in Myanmar. But um, I began to see that there was very there was stylistic differences in pagodas associated with the Waitza versus the more the the way the the kind of pagodas that you find um, throughout the country. And I found out that they were important for a few reasons. One is they're considered, I mean, the, the, again, drawing upon new technological advancements that were coming from outside the country that we talked about early on in the interview. These, the Waitza and the Waitza devotees were talking about these pagodas in ways that they likened to an antenna or a Wi-Fi hotspot or some kind of communication beacon through which they can access another the the another dimension or world where the Waitza are residing. And these pagodas are ways in which the Waitza who, you know, if they decide not to interact with humans in the flesh and blood, can send messages, uh, you know, visions, thoughts, any kind, anything, revelations through these pagodas, which will then, in, you know, interact with the devotees who are in the vicinity of the pagodas. Mm-hmm. And so the pagodas as well, associated with the Waitza, are often referred to as Kodnowin pagodas. So Kodnowin can mean, uh, I mean, usually translated as nine cubits. So cubit is an ancient... Um, uh, length of measurement, which usually roughly corresponds to, you know, about a forearm's length. And so, I mean, it's, it, it gets into crazy mathematical uh, symbolism here. So the number nine is very important to the weights of phenomenon because the number nine is also associated with a very important gata or you know sacred verse of associated with the nine qualities of the buddha otherwise it's otherwise some of your listeners might know it as the itipiso gata so that chanting that gata or inscribing the words of the gata onto an amulet onto a piece of paper onto a candle onto your body as a tattoo or something has great protective powers so if you can use the number, the, the powers associated with the itipiso or the number nine and use it and kind of use it as a blueprint to create a, a certain pagoda, that pagoda will have amazing protective qualities attributed to it. Mm. And one, one of the ways they do that is by creating that pagoda the the dimensions the measurements of the pagodas in factors of nine so many of these konowin nine cubit pagodas really are nine feet high or they might be 18 feet high so 18 you're like well yeah i guess nine times two is uh 18 but really you take the integers one plus eight equals nine or you might have 27 feet high konowin pagoda so seven plus two is nine and nine 
is has another. I mean, going on nine again. Nine also is considered a very mystical number within the Weza tradition because that number, when uh, it just dominates, hmm. it just equals success. Any number, uh, uh, I forget. I wrote in the book. I completely forget it now because I'm not a mathematician. Something like every number you take the number nine. Uh, multiply it by any number and then divide by nine always equals nine or some into some number whose integers add up to yeah. nine. So the nine is just this number that dominates. It's associated with success power. Uh, so you see the number nine being central to the, the ways of phenomenon in general. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, and sorry to go on, but yeah. you went again to another question you asked about to the early 20th century about how the ways of phenomenon became so popular, you know, during the British colonial era, there was this belief that because of this magical association with the number nine, it, its dominance and its power, there was this great movement amongst Weza devotees and associations to create these Konoin pagoda all over the country. They believed that these pagodas, if created throughout the country, would have this effect that would just repel the British. It would, it would somehow get them to move out. It would expel them. Um, so you be, you see peppered throughout the country, these Konoin pagodas popping up all over the place. Many are in disrepair. But there's this been this movement of, uh, in the past decade to either repair many of these pagodas or to create some new ones, like this monk who in 1958 was commit was sent by one of by Bomingan himself to go. Oh, sorry, uh, 1958 Bomingan had already died, but it was while Bomingan was still alive, uh, it entreated this monk to go w- far and wide to build these Konoin pagodas wherever he went. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I actually found this very interesting too. That the uh, that the weights uh, were, in some sense, they were like a lot of other groups during British colonial, the British mm. colonial period, that they were kind of fighting against, um, you know, British rule and sort of trying to protect um, this sasana that they saw as being in decline. Mm. But of course, they did it in their own weights like way. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that you're right. So it was like. Like in the, I talk about how, you know, when the, the, they were so concerned about the Sasana deteriorating mm-hmm. under their watch and while the British were, were ruling, but then we you know the British left, they gained independence in the 1950s. There was this, this renewed revival in the Buddhist Sasana that, which coincided with the, the supposed, you know, 200, 2,500 year halfway mark of the Buddhist Sasana. So there was this idea that, okay, you know, you know, we're in control of our own country again, our destiny, our, our own Buddhism. So at this point, there was less concern with building pagodas, engaging in weights of activity, other Buddhist kind of activity in repelling the British, but more in s- stabilizing the Buddhism that they had. And then slowly in the second half of the 20th century was really about pushing it out, propagating it. I mean, both, I mean, the army, the the sangha, lay people engage in a massive pagoda building and just general Buddhist propaganda exercise in trying to spread Buddhism far and wide, whether in the country or definitely in 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 other parts of the world, mm-hmm. to really kind of solidify the sasana to make sure that okay, it was under threat, we stabilized it, and now let's really 
keep it, you know, really spread it far wide so that, you know, if it happens to die out in another part of the world, it will still be strong in another part of the world and we can keep it lasting for as long as we can. Great. So um, we're, we're getting close to the interview, getting close to the end, but I did want to ask um, mm-hmm. something about sort of uh, weights of sort of self-perception. I mean, you point out that the weights, uh, despite their popularity or perhaps because of their popularity, uh, have been persecuted and maligned. You mentioned this earlier in the interview. Um, and many of the Burmese Buddhists with whom you spoke, who, you know, who weren't weights of devotees, told you that what you were researching wasn't really Buddhism and that you'd be better off focusing mm-hmm. in on a topic such as Vipassana or meditation or Abhidhamma or something so in some sense, that's not really so surprising, right? But what was surprising mm. for me was that many of the Waitsa devotees you interviewed also said you should downplay the role of Waitsa in uh, Burmese mm. Buddhism, instead emphasize, emphasize things like meditation and Buddhist philosophy. So why this um, apparently self-effacing attitude on the part of mm. Waitsa devotees? I mean, do they really think that they're simply engaging in frivolous superstition as some of them suggested to you oh oh wow another great question um i mean they they did they themselves did not think they were engaging in any kind of superstitious activity mm-hmm. um and even the even the governments and the monastic authorities that were trying to suppress them uh or tried to disband their associations of practices also didn't believe they were engaging in superstitious activity they were all in, in quite the opposite they all believed that they were engaging in very powerful activities that had that could have you know very important very important consequences either good or bad depending on what side you were on but they were also very aware of their place in the international world so for example one of the main ways that a foreigner could enter the country you know through the 1980s and 90s and even through you know the 2000s until very recently and stay for long periods of time was only through getting a meditation visa. So if you wanted to be a tourist, you could you know, stay for 28 days, or maybe if you were lucky to get a business visa, you could stay for a bit longer. But if you could get a meditation, you would go to the Burmese consulate and apply for a meditation visa, and you could stay for months and months. And then you may stay, you know, become temporarily ordained. So there, I mean, the Burmese were very aware that one of the major exports of their country was Vipassana meditation, they would send many missionary monks throughout the United States and Europe and, uh, you know, South and South America as well to, you know, missionize v- via Vipassana and which was very good. And that would bring in lots of, you know, meditating tourists back into the country. And so they were very aware that the kind of Buddhism that the world was interested in was, you know, Vipassana, something that was quite different than, the Weza, you know, what we find in the Weza tradition. So they were very aware of that. And while they themselves didn't believe that they were engaging in anything superstitious, they were afraid that, let's say, my readers or my students or people I talked about, they would somehow think negatively of the, the Burmese Buddhists and their country because they would be like, you know... It, you know, you Westerners are not familiar with these kinds of things. You know, we don't want you to 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 look on us as 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 crazy or wacky. So, you know, it's best just to downplay those things. And also, this well, I was doing this research in a time when there was lots of 
uh, when things like now with Facebook is in the country. So there's, you know, since 2013, there's been this uh, uh, cultural, political change happening in the country where people are much freer. But, you know, in the 1990s, 2000s, when I was doing this research, people were still being spied on by the government. Uh, it was in their best interest to downplay their activities in groups like ways of groups that were being monitored by government authorities and spies. So it was, um, it was a, a couple reasons. So, you know, again, how they were seen by outsiders and also how they were seen by insiders and they didn't want to bring any more unnecessary attention to themselves by a foreign uh, uh, researcher. Sure. So we've taken a lot of your time and, you know, I, I should remind listeners that there many just really wonderful firsthand accounts of, um, you know, various things you encountered during your field work that we didn't even touch upon in this interview. But as a final question, I wanted to ask if there's uh, anything that you're currently working on now that uh, this mm. book is out. Yeah, I mean, as I'm getting older, I'm finding out that field work is not as enjoyable as it used to be i don't <laughs> i don't enjoy being sick all the time i don't enjoy uh yeah i'm just old i'm becoming too old and pampered and i don't like being away for so long so this next project uh, yeah i'll still bring in some ethnographic components but i'm really now interested in looking at these spells so i've, I've amassed a very large collection of ways of spell books which include all sorts of diagrams and verses ways of gaining supernatural powers. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's similar to going to Hogwarts and going to their library and pulling down, you know, all these magical spell books. So I've got, you know, the Buddhist ways equivalent just sitting here in my office that I need to get through. And there's some fascinating spells that are just waiting to be translated. And so, and, you know, and, and disgust and, 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 um, so th I think that's my, that's what I'm working on now. I'm translating a bunch of spell books. I'm learning more. I mean, I, while doing my research, I actually did apprentice myself to an actual spell master who taught me how to, un you know, you know, unlock the power of these spells. And I've been trying for years and years and nothing has happened. I have absolutely no magical powers. Uh, I can't fly. I can't walk on water. I can't do, I can't tell winning lottery numbers. My mother-in-law thinks I can. And she, she actually asked, actually, she just recently bought a lottery ticket and asked me to touch it. And also, you know, use some of my weights of magic to, to, uh, <laughs> to hopefully help her win, but nothing like that. But I'm just, so that's, that's my next project looking at a lot of these uh, something more where I don't have to be in the country sure. so often and I can, you know, you know, do the work from the comfort of my, of my office and still be around my family and not have to be away for so, so long. But I imagine my third project will then be more, you know, I'd like to go back into the field and, and do another project, maybe specifically about Bomingown. Uh, I'd like to do eventually, you know, just kind of the, addressing a lot of the questions you asked me in this interview, you know, what is it about this guy? You know, why him? Why that time period? What made him so special? Mm -hmm. So this, these are some of the things I'm thinking about on the horizon. Great. Well, we'll look forward to um, to a second and uh, eventually third book. Uh, oh. <laughs> so, all right. Well, thanks again for taking the time to speak with me today. That's it for today's New Books in Buddhist Studies. See you next time.